This is the Monday, December 19th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, we step out of the Guardian of Forever and into an America that may look familiar. It's struggling with spreading the benefits of the free market to more than well-connected plutocrats tucked snugly in bed with the ruling class. Our guest is Edward T. O'Donnell, author of Henry George and the Crisis of Inequality, Progress and Poverty in the Gilded Age. You may not know who Henry George is, but his ideas swirled around the campaigns for president throughout the recent election. The Gilded Age saw many changes in industrialization, as well as political and economic changes, on the way to a more perfect union. Henry George acted as herald of this new America, warning of an unequal distribution of freedom's fruits, even as monopolists sincerely argued that too-big-to-fail institutions were more efficient than dozens of small companies competing to deliver goods and services like ice and coal. George's voice was rare in a period of rancor, in that he seemed the happy warrior, a man who really wanted to get things done for the benefit of his fellow Americans. Edward T. O'Donnell earned his Ph.D. in American History from Columbia University and is an associate professor of history at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. He also hosts a show of his own called In the Past Lane, which you can follow at the Twitter handle in the past lane. Give the show a listen at inthepastlane.com slash podcast. I look at a lot of websites and his is particularly vibrant. edwardtodonnell.com. That's O'Donnell with two L's. You can lose an hour there if you're not careful, but it'll be time well spent. Okay, now that we've swerved into the past lane ourselves, let's join Ed O'Donnell in the Gilded Age and sightsee through the lens of reformer Henry George. I'm joined on the line by In the Past Lane's Edward O'Donnell, author of Henry George and the Crisis of Inequality, Progress and Poverty in the Gilded Age. Thank you for making the time to talk with the History Author Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be able to be part of it. You begin Henry George and the Crisis of Inequality with a quote out of George's 1879, Progress and Poverty. So let's start with the man in his own words. He writes, quote, Everywhere it is evident that the tendency to inequality cannot go much further without carrying our civilization into that downward path, which is so easy to enter and so hard to abandon, unquote. What is the state of Henry George's America at the time he's writing that? Well, George is writing that right in the middle of the Gilded Age in the 1870s. And in fact, he started to write that 
book in 1877. He finishes it in 1879. And that's right at the tail end of the worst industrial depression in American history up to that point following the Panic of 1873. So all around him, he sees not only high rates of unemployment, 20%, 25% in some areas, thousands and thousands of banks and businesses that have failed, lots of social turmoil. That summer of 1877 was the, the Great Uprising, the biggest railroad strike in American history up to that point, thousands of people going off the job. So it really, to some degree, seems like America's coming apart at the seams. And it's really alarming to a lot of people, including Henry George. And he sees, he's coming to see as after you know a couple 15 years of thinking and writing on the problem that the big problem in America is growing inequality that that is what is going to tear us apart and that's really the central message of his book and his, of his reform career was to point out that inequality you can't get rid of inequality but extreme inequality will destroy democracy destroy our republic and we need to do something about it so that's really the central message he's trying to put out there before a large audience he is living in a period where you're seeing this incredible explosion. And I know today people wonder how it's possible. We see a lot of rosy economic numbers and then we see people going up and we say, well, why aren't the people at the bottom don't seem to be moving? We spend a lot. We have a lot of deficit spending. We have a social net that would be unknown completely to people in the Gilded Age. And George has this inspiration, which is a great moment in any history you can tell because it's that sort of apple falling on the head moment. So describe this epiphany he has about this apparent paradox between wealth and poverty rising simultaneously. What, how does he figure out this? Well, he says he comes to this like conclusion that there's this great enigma, as he calls it, that we are getting richer and richer and more and more advanced and complex as a society, all kinds of new technology and exciting things, really the gilded part of the gilded age. But he says, along with it, quite paradoxically, we have more poverty, more suffering. And that just, he said, we have to find a way to solve this. It shouldn't work this way, that we, that all the benefits of all the progress that we're making seems to be producing a more suffering and more inequality. So that's the big question that sort of looms in his mind. And he ultimately says, doing a lot of thinking about it, he ultimately comes to the conclusion that it's monopoly, that what happens is, even though a tremendous amount of wealth is being generated in this booming industrial economy, that various people have essentially gamed the system. They've found ways to become successful, and then they use that success to gain greater success, greater control, greater market share, and eventually they be begin to extract an unequal, disproportionate amount of the wealth that's being created so that workers are working harder than ever, they're producing more than ever, but they're not getting any of the gains. The gains are all going to speculators, to monopolists, to schemers on Wall Street, people that are gaming the system. And they, in some cases, unlike today where we know the failures, I, I think Ayn Rand said once that you could understand people in the idealistic early days of communism being for the Soviet revolution. But as even Emma Goldman found, who was completely the other end of the political spectrum, when she went there, she saw that they had betrayed the ideals. Lenin, I mean, she's in Lenin's office facing him and risks her life to get out and tell the truth of what's happening in the Soviet Union. But at the time, this is the very early days of the Industrial Revolution, and some of these men that own a monopoly, they are sincere in their belief that, well, why would you want a bunch of different little companies doing it? I can do it all, and don't worry about it. We don't need competition. Competition is inefficient, but the 
benefits of that, the benefits of one big group running it is also part of the negative. And the negative is what's crippling. I mean, they have the power to turn off ice. They can turn off coal. And so it's not something that you want to have. It's just too powerful. And I wonder if that's something that you find yourself reminded of as you read it, that at the time, this wasn't something that was just, I guess you'd say people should know better because they're really all worker and capital alike, sort of feeling their way into this new sort of economy. We have millionaires and billionaires now. Men is like J.P. Morgan, as rich as the government. There, It's really a fascinating time of change. It is. It's really revolutionary. So, you know, sometimes we have terms for historical periods and call them crises or revolutions. And it's really a bit of an exaggeration. But this is truly a revolutionary moment, a hundred years after the actual American Revolution. And you're right. Nobody, there's no playbook for this. No one has ever been in this situation where, in fact, there were some people in the 1870s and 1880s who grew up, like Henry George did, in an era when the biggest business in town had 25 employees, 30 employees, and was local. That's all it was. It was just one operation, one factory, one manufactory of some sort. And now, by the 1870s, you have true corporations, huge railroads that span the entire country, that employ tens of thousands of people, that get their financing from some place called Wall Street. And people, individuals earning just stupendous uh, fortunes, paying no income tax on it, and therefore having extraordinary power. So it's a really alarming situation. And it's one that Henry George said quite plainly in the beginning of his book. He said, if we could take Benjamin Franklin, for example, and time travel him into our era, on the one hand, he'd be amazed and so proud of what his country has produced, you know, this astonishing technology and wealth and, and all. But he'd also be horrified by the trend line towards inequality, towards social turmoil, towards the undermining of democracy. It's such a tumultuous period. There's so much change. You talked there about the panics a little bit. Those were just insane economic downturns. I always think, well, FDR named that one the Great Depression, but having an affinity for the Gilded Age, I say, well, they, they just didn't name it. So I guess we forget about it. You know, they call them panics by years, but there's nothing and nobody to catch you. You maybe have family. If you're fortunate enough to have family, many people don't. People are giving away children. This is a real period of a lack of breaks. You mentioned Wall Street. You know, there's no programs in there that are going to halt trading when there's a big dive. Even on uh, 9-11, you know, we were able to close the market. These things are not in place because it's so new. And because there's so much change shifting under your feet, as an author, you have a really hard job. It's a real challenge. It's not like writing about one narrow little sliver. There's a ton of moving parts. You're herding cats. So to illustrate the time and then the dedication that that required, your daughter, who used to refer to this as your book about Curious George, was 24 years old when you first held the published copy. So obviously she'd moved on quite a bit since then. I wonder what advice you can give to inspire others who want to write, have a story to tell, maybe need to go away from it for years at a time when life intervenes. What advice do you give for sticking to sort of the slow lane there, not in the fast lane, the pun that's the title of your podcast, but how do you keep inspired when it takes such a long road to publication? You know, the story behind that is we don't have enough time to tell it, but it really was just a series of moments in, when life intervened. And so it wasn't the first book that I published after 20 years of labor, but it, it ultimately it was going to be my first book. Then it became my fourth book. So 
I would say though to anybody who's who wants to to write, the first rule of writing is to write. <laughs> Stop thinking about it and start doing it. That's what successful writers ultimately do. Is they say, "I just started," and I might mean you rewrite many, many times over. Another thing to do is to start small. This is a gem of wisdom that my agent gave me once. He said, "You know the story of Laura Hillebrand, who wrote the." best-selling book, Seabiscuit, he said nobody would touch the book. Nobody wanted a book about a horse. So she ended up writing a couple thousand word version of it for a history magazine. And once that was published, people could see the story. They could see the drama and the great kind of story that would not just be the story of this incredible horse, but also the times and everything else. And boom, she got a book contract. So I would say keep writing and then also find ways to get published even in small form. That's probably two of the things that I would recommend. And don't give up. Lots of great stories out there about authors who toil away and eventually get published when they're 40 years old, when they're 50 years old. So take those as inspirational examples. One area where there seems to be broad outrage across the political spectrum today is the influence of cronyism. Now, they had that back then, but I think we believe today that we don't have that anymore as much as exactly, or at least we don't realize what form it's taking until we really dig into it. And it's not just the corporations and labor unions that today are more powerful than anything that existed in the Gilded Age, lobbyists. It's a whole different world, but there's a level of power and a level of cronyism that there's a reason people sometimes refer to today as a new Gilded Age. You can go in there as the owner of a Walmart, say, and you know that your competitors can't compete. If you get in bed with the government, you agree with something that they want to do, a policy, and you know that your competitors won't be able to. It's amazing that the same things come up again and again. I wonder if as you're writing it, because it is going over all those many years from your daughter's Curious George phase to her college years, if you saw those changes very starkly and were there things that happened along those many years that sort of inspired you to go back and say, hey, I want to start this again because it's timely now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the book would have been timely had it come out in the late 80s, in the early 90s, the mid 90s, uh, and so forth. But as I got back to it in the early 2000s, and certainly as I got closer and closer to a publication date, it really became apparent to me that, you know, the strange way that life works out, the, the book is actually more relevant and more timely than ever. You know, the fact that it comes out in 2015, because this conversation has evolved and the questions about inequality, the questions about the 1% are really now big parts of our national conversation. And you also, if you were to just Google search New Gilded Age or Second Gilded Age, you would see tremendous numbers of references to it in newspapers, protesters down, down at Occupy Wall Street carrying signs about the Second Gilded Age. So there's really, in kind of a weird, fortunate way, my book is coming out at or came out at a time when this conversation about the Second Gilded Age and political corruption and inequality and what we should do about it really is a central conversation in our national political dialogue. And I think something that surprised me, I guess, about Henry George, I've read a lot of things about the Gilded Age, you know, I'm passionate about the period, is he could have gone to somebody, I think, somebody who's sincere in any movement, whether it's Occupy Wall Street or the Tea Party movement or Black Lives Matter, anybody he found anywhere that really wanted to make a positive change. Any movement's going to have people who aren't really invested in doing anything, but they like to scream a lot and create a lot of headlines. But he seems so unique in the fact that he really wanted to get things done. Yeah, he was a, a real true believer. You know, he essentially dedicated his whole adult life once he 
wrote his book to for getting that message out and pushing people to adopt pretty radical changes in a very tumultuous time period. He was never about the money. He certainly liked the spotlight he wanted, but he always saw the attention that he got as a means to get the message out. And he lived very modestly and had a circle of very devoted followers. And even after he died, even up to the present day, there are lots and lots of Henry George organizations and societies and individuals who follow at least the gist of his ideas, if not the direct, very specific program that he laid out. A resolution by the Central Labor Union in 1882 states about the railroads that they control the legislature, the judges, and both political parties. Probably not a coincidence that, that makes me think of The Godfather, right? When the other families are saying, hey, Don Corleone controls all the judges. He must share them. What can we learn of George's effort to unite people for positive reform when, you know, they don't have on speed dial a senator or a judge or certainly not a president? Well, I think that's one of his central messages, and he's not the first American to say this. I mean, this was the big conversation in the age of Jackson and why Jackson took on and eventually snuffed out the the Bank of the United States. He said the problem of democracy is true in Jackson's age, and it's true in the Gilded Age especially, is that when private interests get involved in political affairs and use their private influence, their money, their power to influence politicians and influence the system, then our democracy is compromised. And so that's what George and many others are wrestling with in the Gilded Age. They look around and they see that these new corporations aren't just big and powerful and perhaps not so great to their workers, but they are also bribing legislatures. They are also leaning on people to get favorable tax deals, to get favorable Everything from, you know, land deals that allow them to, to build rights of way. And so there seems to be, there's a real palpable sense that every level of government seems to be in the pocket of business. And this is really true in George's day. The, the big question in New York City in the mid 1880s, one of the big controversies were, were the streetcar companies. This, this is in the days of privatized mass transit. And basically the streetcar companies would get contracts from the city of New York to run on certain streets. Well, they were making massive sums of money off of the people of New York. But in the mid-1880s, a scandal broke that showed that the way they were all getting these contracts was bribing city councilors to the tune of stupendous sums of money. And that local story mirrored the kind of corruption that people were aware of that was taking place on the national level, that the big railroads were actually doing the same thing in the halls of Congress. Streetcars and trolleys, that was my next question. They're beautiful in pictures of this era. I spend a lot of time just sort of gazing back at photos and looking for details. But the men at the controls, they're laboring long hours, and it's not as romantic as maybe the picture. I wanted you to tell us they're often calling strikes here, these streetcar drivers, just to focus on that one job. For instance, the great upheaval of 1886, that they're part of that. Describe the life of somebody in a job like streetcar driver, and what's Henry George's background that he comes in contact and finds himself in sympathy with them? Well, these mass transit systems that were you know, privatized streetcar companies, these companies make a huge amount of money on the fares that they charge, and they're supposed to share these this revenue with the city. That's a whole other thing. It turns out they actually are shaving a lot of it off for themselves. But the real thing that gets people upset is the way they treat their workers. These are men who work minimum 14 hours a day, and the, they are doing so standing up. Some of them work as long as 18 hours a day. They only make about $2 a day, which is barely subsistence, especially if you have a family. So they're working extremely long hours. 
and getting very, very low pay. They work standing up the whole time. So there's, there are health issues, especially when it's the dead of winter or it's, if you've ever been in Manhattan when it's 100 degrees, it's a pretty tough job. The companies are also notorious for dinging the work, their workers for, you know, getting caught in traffic jams so that even though they're, they're running behind on their schedule and this has nothing to do with their own performance, they're just stuck in traffic. They get 25 cents taken off of their daily pay. Or if they need to use the bathroom, they are fined for not being on duty. So there's a lot of big and small forms of oppression that are very evident in the lives of these streetcar workers. And that's why they do go on several big strikes that paralyze New York City in uh, 1886. And this happens in other cities as well. But in New York, it really seems to be particularly acute. That's the year, that's spring of 1886, when the national labor movement is really doing a lot, an awful lot. There's many, many strikes. There's a lot of pushback against what workers see as an oppressive labor environment and also oppressive actions by local police departments to break strikes and so forth. So the summer of 86 is really tumultuous. And that's the environment where George is is essentially courted by New York City's labor movement to run as an independent labor party candidate for mayor. And he runs against one other figure people may have heard of, Theodore Roosevelt. This is not even greater New York yet, by the way. It's just Manhattan and the West Bronx. Who are his opponents in this race, and how does he do talking his message on the stump? Because he's clearly a man who has opinions, who feels he should be able to talk to anybody. So how does he do in this race? Well, it's one of the most fascinating political races in American history, and certainly the most famous mayor's race in the city of New York. George is a well-known author. His book has become a bestseller, and so he's pretty well-known as a reformer, both within the United States and really basically anywhere in the English-speaking world. So it's quite an amazing story that this guy who with a sixth-grade education is now this great world-known intellectual. And he's planning on working on another book in the summer of 1886, but the Labor Party is really furious with the crackdown on labor, both by business and also by local officials. By July of 86, they, about 100 labor leaders in New York City alone are in jail for leading strikes and calling boycotts. And they go to George and they need what they want is a legitimate Labor Party candidate. There have been independent Labor Party efforts in New York in the past, and they've mostly been these symbolic failures. You know, some bricklayer gets nominated to be mayor of New York for the Labor Party, and he gets 307 votes. And it's embarrassing. And it also, you know, splits the labor movement because some people are angry that think it's a waste of time and money. And so with 1886, they don't want to do that. They want a real campaign and really have an opportunity to win the mayor's race. And George is the perfect candidate. He is a real worker. He's a guy who, you know, with only a marginal education, he became a printer in his young years and uh, still was a member in good standing of a printer's union. He was actually a member of the Knights of Labor, which was the largest labor union, essentially a union of unions in the United States at the time. So he had great labor credentials, but he was also a highly accomplished writer and essentially a public intellectual. So he had that going for him as well, which would broaden his appeal beyond just wage earners to middle class, maybe even upper class voters. And at first, George doesn't want to run. He knows the disastrous fate of previous Labor Party candidates, and he thinks it'll maybe actually derail his career. But eventually, he's convinced to do it. And he, he says to them, look, I'll do it if you can get 30,000 signatures from citizens of New York pledged to vote for me. And the long story is they do it. They get more than 30,000 votes. He agrees. And they launch in October of 1886, the most incredible campaign up to that point in New York City history. It's really a true grassroots campaign where George goes around the city every night till all hours, giving five, eight, ten speeches on street corners 
in front of factories, by train stations, and he does so on the back of a flatbed truck or a flatbed wagon in those days, on the tailboard. So it's called the Great Tailboard Campaign. And he really reaches a lot of people. There are lots of other people out on the stump also speaking on street corners. And even though they have no experience and they have no money and they have no formal political organization, come election day, they have really launched a movement, so much so that you can tell that the other two parties, the Republican Party, who is running Theodore Roosevelt, an up-and-coming politician, and the Democratic Party, who is running Abram Hewitt, who is a well-known congressman, they are really nervous that labor might actually win the election. And on election day, George doesn't win, but he gets 68,000 votes, way more than anybody could have ever imagined. He finishes second to Hewitt, who is the ultimate winner, and he finishes far ahead of this up-and-comer named Theodore Roosevelt. So that's an interesting footnote to the overall story. You said sixth grade education. Take us back to what his start is. I hinted at it a little bit before for that kind of apple in the head moment that he has, that epiphany. But take us back. What's his background? Well, Henry George is born in 1839 in the city of Philadelphia, and he's born into a what we'd call a lower middle class family, sort of a very comfortable, happy household, very stable, but they were not wealthy. A lot of people have often thought that Henry George must have grown up in terrible poverty, and that's why he writes this famous book about progress and poverty, but that's not the case. His experience with poverty comes later. So he turns out to be a very bright kid, but not a good student. And so somewhere around the sixth or seventh grade, his father just yanks him out of school, giving up on giving him a formal education and gets him into an apprenticeship as a printer, which was actually a terrific job. The printers are in high demand. It's a highly skilled job setting type for newspapers, for books and magazines. And that's George's original career. In his late teens, he decides that he's had enough of Philadelphia and his family and he wants, he heads for California, sort of a classic a man on the make wants to go, where would you go if you wanted to make it in antebellum America? You'd go to California. And he goes out to California, and for the next five, six, seven years, he has these really off-again, on-again experiences where things are going well, and then he's next thing you know, he's homeless. That's where he really experiences hardship, poverty, despair, even occasional thoughts of suicide, he says in his diary. But eventually, because he has this printer's background, he gets some work in local newspapers out in San Francisco. And from there, his writing ability, his intelligence allow him to go from the compositor's room, the typesetting room, on up to becoming a journalist, eventually an editor, and eventually the owner of some pretty important newspapers out west. So by the mid-1870s, he's well known in California anyway as a newspaper editor and a reform-minded newspaper editor. And that's the stage where in the mid-1870s, he decides that he needs to write a book that's going to address these great problems facing the country. My guest is Edward T. O'Donnell, host of the In the Past Lane podcast and author of Henry George and the Crisis of Inequality, Progress and Poverty in the Gilded Age. Dr. O'Donnell is the author of several books. You've seen his articles and op-eds in places including the New York Times, the New York Daily News, and one of my favorite magazines to grab on the way out of a bar back before we had smartphones to entertain us, The Irish Echo. Follow him on the Twitter account named for his podcast, In the Past Lane, and visit his website, edwardtodonnell.com. That's O'Donnell with two L's. Sven Beckert of Harvard University wrote of Henry George and the Crisis of Inequality, quote, In the 19th century, Few voices were as powerful and had as lasting an impact as that of Henry George. 
Edward O'Donnell's political biography is a brilliant introduction to George's life, ideas, and politics, showing that inequality can generate political movements that challenge the rich and powerful, unquote. I want to focus on that idea of the lasting impact of Henry George's voice. We're still hearing it, what, 120, 130 years later. You and I read a lot about the Gilded Age. We share that affection for this period and a desire to help people kind of learn from it, not repeat the mistakes of the past. We know many people, even presidents, completely disappear from the record from that period. We tend to just see a blur of bearded faces from then. They're turned into caricatures, maybe, outright lied about. Even T.R. is not immune from that. So what is it about Henry George that his words endure over a century later? Well, I think with Henry George, one of the answers why he's still well-known and still a person that people are studying and referring to and trying to figure out our own circumstances, one of the things is that his book, which he wrote, published in 1879, Progress and Poverty, is so well-written. It's this curious blend of economic theory, and philosophy and religion and American history and world history. It's a very readable book. And also the essential point that he was trying to make is still with us. It's always with us, but it comes back in more acute form now and again. And that is this tension between democracy and individualism, the problems that inequality posed to a democracy, how much inequality, we, we know we have to have some inequality, it's inescapable, but how much is too much? And ultimately one of the big tension points that his book and his career touch upon is this tension that's always there at the heart of American history, which is we are a nation of individuals and we believe deeply in individualism and pursuits of happiness, but we also have a common good tradition. And that often gets lost. People forget that. But all the founders believed both in individualism and in the common good. So Henry George, in in some ways, his book is sort of a call to say we can't only be about individualism. Look what unchecked, rampant individualism is doing to our democracy, to our republic in this Gilded Age. We need to have a corrective. We need to have some way to rein it back in so we can have the benefits of progress, the benefits of capitalism, the benefits of individualism, but also have some sharing of those benefits so that the common good, the community also benefits. And that's really the kind of thing he's trying to remind us about and that why that message is very relevant now, whether it's you're talking about wealth inequality or even things like the environment or education, the way those issues are promoted and argued for in our time in the 21st century is that common good ideal, right? We don't like the idea of environmental regulation, but if we stop and think and widen the lens a little bit and think about what pollution, pollution actually does carry a cost and we all end up paying it. So maybe we impose some regulations on pollution that will make some of our goods a little more expensive, might drive down the stock price of a company or two, but they will benefit the common good. So these, it's this tension between the two, trying to find the right balance. And that's what Henry George's book is really ultimately about, saying we need to, the scales sometimes tip way too far in the individualist column, and we need to tip them back a little bit more towards the center where the common good is not forgotten. It's even in the preamble to the Constitution. You talked about the founding fathers having this view. The lines are there, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. We are their posterity, and we're talking about ours. doesn't mean that every regulation isn't going to be some of this cronyism we talked about. For instance, the cigarette machines, I think this was about, oh, I don't know, maybe five years ago. You know, you'd go, you'd pick your tobacco, you'd 
suppress them yourself. It was just a novelty for people that smoke, and they were costing a lot of money for tobacco companies. So, you know, you get a friendly senator to write into the budget a line that bans those. And, you know, oftentimes they write regulations, something like the Deepwater Horizon, you know, and then you have a friendly politician that will help you skate on some of the inspections. It's very, very similar. It's just now we have iPads to do. We don't have the telegraph. And the fact that Henry George is still listened to, I I just can't get over it that people still seek out that voice. What was it that made him a good writer? It's a good question what made him a good writer because, you know, he only had that education until he was about 13. But I think he was a voracious reader, really liked to read and, and to write. And I think he was a guy who deep down always had this kind of religious, moral sensibility. He was not a formally, he wasn't a churchy religious guy, but he was a deeply religious, kind of quiet evangelical sensibility about justice and about right and wrong and not in a preachy way, you know, from a religious standpoint, but seeing the need to reform society, reform the republic, to save the republic from itself. He saw that very much in providential, in religious terms. He saw himself very much as a prophet, a guy who had something to say. It's really fascinating up to the point where his book is published. He's had a very checkered career. You know, he's really, he's started and lost many businesses. He's been broke many, many times. Yet when he finishes the first edition of the book, which he actually has to privately publish because nobody will publish it, he sends a copy to his father. And so his father's keenly aware of the fact that his son is a nice guy, but he doesn't seem to have stick to He seems to make a lot of bad business decisions. Yet he writes to his father, this book is going to be an incredibly famous book someday. It's going to be translated into many, many languages. People will be reading it a hundred years hence. It will have the power to change minds and change societies. It's really, you know, on the, on the one level, it seems almost ridiculous that he would be writing this because there's no, nothing in his life up to that point that would suggest that any of this is going to happen. And yet it is precisely what does in fact happen in the next 5, 10, 15 years? The book becomes internationally famous. It becomes the best-selling book in, of economics in American history. It goes global, and it's still in print to this very day. Leo Tolstoy said, people do not argue with the teachings of Henry George. They simply do not know it. He who becomes acquainted with it cannot but agree, unquote. Here we've mentioned people all over the political spectrum that see problems, maybe just can't name them, maybe don't know what to do about them, but they may be surprised how much they agree about. And as you said there, the Democrats and Republicans here, the age of Tammany Hall, I mean, you can't, you can't get much more partisan than that, right? And then, but they both managed to get together even on consolidation with, uh, Senator Thomas Platt, who was the senator from New York and the Republican boss for the state. He managed to make some common cause with Tammany Hall Democrats all the time. And, you know, when they get together, it's sort of like Alien versus Predator. The slogan was, whoever wins, we lose. So it's kind of like that. So I wonder, do your readers, do your students, do they want to put George in a box? And has that been fun to watch as you see the reaction that he refuses to climb into a box? He refuses to stay in there. He he wants to sort of get out and keep preaching from a historical perspective. Yeah, he. A lot of people, in, certainly, even when he was at the height of his power and influence in the mid 1880s, people were trying to put him in a box. They're trying to say he's just a, a socialist. Several ways they put it. Sometimes they just said he's a socialist, therefore he's dangerous. Others realized that people liked him too much; they couldn't be too critical. So they said he's a misguided philosopher, right? He's a starry-eyed dreamer, and he's latched onto what he something he thinks is a proper reform. 
he doesn't understand that it is the seeds of our destruction. It's, it's anarchism, it's socialism, it's communism. So even in his time, people were trying to put him in that kind of box. Since that time, though, I think Henry George is, you know, people, I don't know if people try to put him in a box so much as people are continuing to rediscover him. And I have never done this, but I've often wondered if we went and lined up, you know, year after year of U.S. history textbooks, we'd see periods where he doesn't even get more than a sentence, if, if that, in a chapter about the Gilded Age. And my sense now, and I've actually looked at a few books in the recent times, that there's, in most cases, almost a full paragraph on Henry George, which doesn't seem like a lot, but in, believe me, as a co-author of a U.S. history textbook, that's a lot of real estate, that George <laughs> does get a lot more attention because we now, I think we have a better understanding of the Gilded Age. And these big questions about equality and democracy and corruption and so forth. And these are things, issues and questions that are once again very relevant to us in the 21st century. You talked about his idealism. You cite a pledge in Henry George and the crisis of inequality that under the United Labor Party, they required candidates to pledge that they would be basically upstanding citizens. It seems I don't know, maybe quaint. If you're really cynical, it probably seems very naive. But summarize it. Summarize this idealistic goal and what Henry George was going for and what was the effectiveness of this pledge. Yeah, the pledge is very interesting. It's a real window into the political consciousness of workers in the Gilded Age. Basically, what it was is they had seen the major parties do whatever they wanted. They, they would come according in October for the working man's vote and talk about the importance of standing up for the working man and, and all of that. And then, as they say, after Election Day, abandon them for another 10 months or so and then come back in the fall for another round of getting votes. And so – they they were keenly aware of the fact that they were really wanted only for their votes and their voices about the eight hour day, their voices about workmen's compensation, their voices about in their their pleas for help in all kinds of different ways were simply not going to be heeded because the parties were in the hands of of business interests. So when the United Labor Party forms in it forms several times when it forms in its biggest form in 1886, they are concerned about corruption and about the major parties trying to stymie them. And they know that the parties have all kinds of tricks. And one of them is to put forward candidates who will, at the last second, pull out of the race. So you get a United Labor Party might nominate somebody to for a city council seat, and he will, by all appearances, be the representative of the United Labor Party. And then two days before the election, he will resign. And that will leave the United Labor Party with no candidate and Tammany or the Republicans will win. So this pledge was this effort to really get people to commit heart and soul to, you know, really to raise their right hand and, and pledge. I promise to take no bribes. I promise to abide by all these rules of propriety and rules that will prevent me from even having the appearance of being corrupt. And I absolutely positively will not drop out of the race. So it shows you both to some degree their idealism, but also in some ways their desperation. They really feel like politics is rigged. And the only way to have a prayer of of a chance of winning in these elections is to get people to stand up and, and take a pledge. And I think it also kind of lent a certain urgency and moral quality to the campaign as well. We talked a little bit there about the idea of raising revenue during this time. The government needs it to run. There's no income tax. This is a pre-income tax America. So in Henry George and the crisis of inequality, it 
takes you down in your research anyway. You fortunately streamlined it all for us. You did the hard work for us, but you have to go down and look at the tax code there. There's no income tax. The tax code is completely different than the behemoth that we have today and tons of favors written into there by your favorite or least favorite politician, maybe not necessarily matching up with your favorite or least favorite group or corporation. So what was Henry George's view of the mission of the tax code? What did he think its function was on that moral level? Well, it's it's hard for us to think about you know taxes as having a moral quality or people thinking that way. But people did. People thought of the tariff, which is a different kind of tax, tax on imports, as a law that had a moral quality. Those who hated it said it's an immoral tax, an immoral policy. And those who favored it said it was a very moral one that protected American business. And you're right. There is no income tax and there are the taxes are largely the federal government runs almost exclusively on tariffs and on excise taxes on things like alcohol. And so there are we're always uh, schemes behind the scenes to rig the the excise tax to lower it, make exceptions for various where the tariffs were applied and so forth. So there's a sense that the tariff and the tax system is inadequate for the age because it doesn't tax any of this massive income that's now being generated. And it also is subject to the twists and turns and the manipulations of politicians behind the scenes. And so George's scheme, his ultimate reform, was something called the single tax, which was to get rid of all taxes, property tax, income tax, excise tax, sales tax, get rid of them all. So there's no more manipulation. And we have one tax on land values. And that will solve everything. It'll raise plenty of money. And it will also prevent monopoly and prevent speculation and prevent corruption in its application. Now, George never really lays out exactly what this tax would be and how it would work. So people were sort of attracted to the idea of this tax in many ways. You know, he didn't lay out a specific formula for how it would work. That said, the land value tax, the idea of a land values based tax is very popular and is actually quite a legitimate mainstream idea among economists, particularly in urban areas. They see sort of a derivation or an, a, you know, version of, of George's single tax or at least the land value based tax uh, as a way of generating urban development creating more equality within urban areas. So there's certain ways in which his ideas are still carried on and still put in practice. And I have to ask you, I've teased it a couple of times about in the past lane, how did this come about? How did you jump into this new medium of podcasting? And what will people hear when they hopefully go to your site and check you out? Well, I've always been, I was guess that you'd call me an early adopter or early enthusiast when it comes to podcasting. I've been a consuming podcasts really since they first started. And I've always, that's one part of the answer. The other part is that I've always been a historian who does historian stuff. I do research, I publish things, and, and I teach classes at a nice college. But I've always done things that is what we'd call public history. I've done work with museums, I've done things for NPR and for History Channel. I do a lot of public lectures. And way back when I gave, you know, more than a thousand walking tours of historic sites in New York City. So podcasting seems like a natural progression, something that where I could reach a wide audience to get people to think about history, history in a way that's entertaining, but also history that makes you stop and think. And you clearly have a natural desire and talent for teaching. I know I have the desire. I don't know how good my talent is for it, but this is a way to reach people. I did look at in the past lane and I checked out people's comments and 
seeing people share it. In fact, that's how we first connected was on Twitter. But you reach people who maybe won't sit down and read a history book. You know, they won't sit down and read about Henry necessarily unless you catch them by throwing this wider net. Do you find that people are telling you, hey, I listen to you on my own walks or at the gym or wherever they are commuting in their car? Yeah, some of the best parts about, and I'm sure you experience this as well, some of the best parts of being a podcaster is is audience feedback and hearing either suggestions that people have for future episodes or people talking about how they've they found something you talked about moving or inspirational or just really informative. And I also hear from teachers and from college professors telling me that they've used segments of my podcast in their classes, say something I did a feature on the, the sort of the unknown history behind the Statue of Liberty, for example. And I've had a number of people tell me that they've used that 10 minute story as a setup for a unit on immigration. I have a final question about Henry George, and it's easy for us all to find a thing in a life such as George or somebody who's written something that's so broad and has so many profound things in it. I mean, you're drawing Tolstoy to comment on you favorably. You must be pretty good, right? You're in, the, in your writing. So we can also look at something like this, I think, and feel like it bolsters our side. And you know, we can just sort of go to sleep after reading it and say, well, we're on the side of the angels. I, I would have agreed with everything that he did back then, but we don't live back then. This is our time and we have to worry about posterity still, just as the founding fathers did, just as Henry George did. So I wonder for you, what do you hope readers will take away as an action here from reading the book? What do you think they will be challenged by when they read your description of Henry George's amazing life? I would say the simplest answer to that is that George would – one of his central messages and one that is very relevant today, which is that democracy and equality and human rights and all of the things that many people care about, they must be struggled for. They must be protected. They must be fought for. And that democracy is a verb. You know, it's, it's something you've got to pursue and protect and mobilize for. And if you care about these things, you really, you can't just sit back and let, uh, the political system fall apart or wash your hands of it because you think it's too corrupt and unequal. George, he really, his message is we have got to do something about this. And the life of a republic requires every generation to engage in sort of rethinking the whole thing and adopting reforms, adopting in some cases, quite radical reforms. He says, if you don't change, if you don't adapt and reform, you die. That's what Rome did. Rome was once the greatest civilization that ever was, and they didn't do anything about rising inequality. They didn't do anything about anger rising among the masses, and they let it all fall apart. And same thing with ancient Greece, same thing with many, many other great nations in, in world history. He has a great line. He says, history is littered with the skeletons of great nations, and we are going to be one of them unless we do something about it. So it's a little bit of a, a warning, but also an optimism. He says, you know, we can avert this crisis. And I think that's true today. We have many problems in our society in, in, in 2016, but all of them are solvable. You know, we do live in a democracy, however imperfect it is. And one of the things that historians like to point out to people is that nothing in history is inevitable. It looks inevitable after it's happened, but it is the sum total of human choices. And we individually and collectively can choose different policies, choose different outcomes, choose different destinies. And that's the challenge that guys like George and other reformers in the Gilded Age leave us with. 
Well, Edward T. O'Donnell, host of the In the Past Lane podcast and author of Henry George and the Crisis of Inequality. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for introducing me to Henry George. Best of luck with the book. And I hope you'll come on again when we've achieved this more perfect union. All right. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Again, the book is Henry George and the Crisis of Inequality, Progress and Poverty in the Gilded Age. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even bookmark the URL of our homepage for all your Amazon purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of everything you buy at no additional cost to you. You might say it's their way of spreading some income equality around. Thanks to Ed O'Donnell for joining us and for sharing a significant voice from the struggle to spare America from the kinds of bloody upheavals other nations saw as the industrial age threatened to turn human beings into mere cogs of a machine. Please give a listen to Ed's In the Past Lane podcast, follow his Twitter handle of the same name, and visit edwardtodonnell.com. You can also check out the Robert Schalkenbach Foundation at schalkenbach.org. That's S-C-H-A-L-K-E-N-B-A-C-H. They are publishers of Henry George and related works. Or you can visit other organizations like the Henry George Foundation at henrygeorgefoundation.org. And while you're online, why not let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or facebook.com slash history author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same On the east side, west side Things ain't like before There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys Oh, New York ain't New York anymore